0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the
2: sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
0: This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours.
3: Mike and I had been there about three hours in the morning. And our goal for that that day, that first day, was to identify and photograph all the men in the group. At about 10.30, the local Afghan commander said there were about 20 men left to see and they were still in the cellar. And apparently they didn't want to come up, up out of the cellar. Well, apparently they had, well, they did have weapons on their person uh, and they, they hid those weapons on themselves. They used them when they were coming, coming up the stairs and they shot the uh, Afghan personnel that were trying to take the weapons away from them. And that's when it all started. The uprising started there. Some of the prisoners came towards me, came for me. I started to shoot at them, shoot them. I moved eventually to Mike and I found him covered with four of the Al Qaeda guys. And Mike was Mike was dead at this point. I took his rifle and with his rifle and my pistol I began to fire again. And over the course of about 17 minutes, I fired about 100 rounds. It was very intense combat, very close quarters combat. And sometimes these guys were just feet away when they were shooting at me and I was shooting at them. It was just crazy. If you can remember that, those opening and closing scenes of Saving Private Ryan, the movie, Mm -hmm. when uh, Private Ryan, as an old man, visits the cemetery and the grave of the sergeant who saved his life he struggles with that idea of sacrifice and and his being the the survivor and i guess at least for me all one can do is try to be a better person and always remember the honor and sacrifice made by people like mike and, and many many others
0: david tyson was until recently a paramilitary officer at the Central Intelligence Agency. He was one of the first CIA officers into Afghanistan after 9-11. And he was with the first casualty of that war, Mike Spann, when Mike was killed in action on November 25th, 2001. As part of our Spy story series, I just sat down with David to talk about his career, his time in Afghanistan, and that terrible moment in November 19 years ago today. We'll be right back with that conversation after a quick word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters Declassified, spy stories from the officers who were there.
2: Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So, sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort, meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
0: David, thank you for joining us for the next episode in our Intelligence Matters Declassified series. It is great to have you on the show. Welcome. So, this episode is, I think, going to be a bit of a tough one because it's the story of an agency officer, Mike Spann, who was the first American killed in combat in the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan after 9-11. And it's going to be especially tough because you, David, were there with Mike when he was lost. So thank you, you know, very much for doing this. I know it's not easy.
3: Okay. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: David, let's start with your story pre-911. How did you come to work at CIA?
3: Well, I was born and raised in a town in Pennsylvania. And after high school, I enlisted in the army. And uh, I used the GI Bill after the army to go to college. And at college, I started taking Russian, uh, the language, and I just loved it. I became obsessed with it. And I uh, just wanted to do Russian. But I graduated, then went back into the army. Uh, became an officer, and got out, and then went to graduate school. And in graduate school, I uh, studied Central Asian languages like Uzbek and Turkmen. And while teaching in grad school, I became uh, became aware of CIA careers, and I applied and got a job. When was that? That was in 1996. I hmm. was first hired, and I was I started out as a translator using uh, those languages Uzbek, Turkmen, and Russian. But as soon I transferred into the Directorate of Operations,
0: did you go right to the paramilitary side of things, or did you kind of work your way there?
3: No, uh, actually, I I did not go into the PM field at all. I just became a line case officer, and my first assignment okay. was in Central Asia, where I spent uh, all. All told about ten years uh, during uh, living out there, and I had my family out there with me.
0: So David, where were you on nine eleven when you heard about what happened? Well,
3: just prior to nine eleven or in the couple of years prior to nine eleven, i had I was in Central Asia with my family on a tour, and uh, we had some experience going to Afghanistan and with Afghan issues. And uh using my languages, some of the languages of Afghanistan, so uh I was in Central Asia when nine eleven happened and when when that took place, it became uh clear at least to most of us what was going to happen next, and that was that we would go in back into Afghanistan for me, and the agency quickly made plans to be the first government entity deployed to the country after 9-11. And I was selected to go on one of the teams.
0: Did you come back to Washington first before going to Afghanistan? Or did you go right from where you were in Central Asia?
3: Right from Central Asia. No, I did not go back to, uh, to uh, the headquarters area. And uh, I, I waited for the team to get there.
0: So you went into Afghanistan with the team from where you were? Right, right. And, uh, and was Mike with you then?
3: Yeah, our, our he uh, he and his team came came out to Central Asia and to prepare for our deployment and our team of eight people, eight men flew into Central Asia. Uh, I mean, into Afghanistan. I'm sorry, on two uh, U.S. Special Operations Black Hawk helicopters. And Mike was a member of that team. Obviously, David, did you know him before? All of this? Yeah, I knew Mike, and uh, he had deployed to uh, Central Asia a couple times before, and there we worked together on counter-terrorist issues. He was a paramilitary officer, and thanks to his background as a Marine, he took part in the training of foreign special forces troops. And like me, he had a wife and young children, and we both just had started our careers at CIA basically. Uh, he was from Alabama. He was a patriot. He was very serious about his work. He was very meticulous, and he was very professional. Uh, he always had the mission at the forefront of his mind and he was but he was kind of quiet and had a dry but very good sense of humor. He was a true warrior, and he became a friend as well
0: so you two are working together in Afghanistan after nine eleven What's your job?
3: Well, our team of eight eight men we we had a so-called warlord to work with. Uh, his name was Abdul Rashid Dostum. He was ethnic Uzbek, and uh, he had a force under his command that was fighting the Taliban and Al Qaeda. And uh, Dostum and his Uzbeks were more or less cavalrymen. That's how they they did their uh, war fighting. Uh, this uh, Commander Dostum was an excellent commander, a tactician, and partner for us. And thanks to my language skills, I got to work with him pretty closely. And soon after we arrived, we facilitated the insertion of a U.S. Army Special Forces team, ODA Operational Detachment Alpha Five Nine Five. They were a, a great group, a great group of guys, and we together, meaning the Afghan Uzbeks and the other Afghans, and our team, uh, and the Green Beret team quickly became a really formidable and effective, effective fighting force. One unexpected problem for us was that uh, we had to ride horses almost every day. And believe me, we weren't prepared for that. And, uh, This was under combat conditions a lot of times and for many hours uh, a day in some cases. And and very few of us had ridden horses before. So we also had to become uh, combat cavalrymen as well. And while we did ride the horses, we could no way, of course, compare to the Afghan Uzbek fighters who had basically been born and raised on horseback. They routinely conducted cavalry charges against the enemy and fired, for example, their machine guns and rocket-propelled grenades while charging. It was just incredible to witness this. I was constantly in all of them and their, their toughness, their skills, and these guys became great partners for us. And I have to say the pain and suffering and fear I experienced while on horseback was also often kind of intense. And, and most of the time we, we, well, at least I, I dreaded riding. Now I feel kind of nostalgic for it. And I I should also note that the green beret team that we brought into Afghanistan and worked with was featured in that movie 12 strong. We were where uh, we were with them the whole way, but our team was not depicted in the movie, of course, really. The SF team was extremely well led and, and effective. Uh, it was a great group of guys. And by early 2001, we had made great progress and after a lot of combat, intense combat, south of the city called mazar i sharif these Afghan forces we were with and us, we, we entered the city. Of Mazar
0: and what happened there?
3: Mike and I had been working a lot together and and uh, our job well, it was multifaceted, but we mostly worked with our Afghan partners, our Afghan Uzbek partners to learn about the situation uh, and gather information threat information. Uh, we also spoke with captured uh, and surrendered enemy fighters. Mike had the task of setting up drop zones for the, the weapons and supplies that, was par- that were parachuted in on a nightly basis. And at the end of, towards the end of November, uh, we got information that a large number of al-Qaeda fighters were to surrender and arrive at Ma- in Mazar-e-Sharif, the city we were in, on uh, 23 or 24 November. And we spoke to our headquarters, and as expected, we were ordered to learn as much as we could from these guys, these prisoners, uh, these al-Qaeda men, and uh, who they are, what they were up to, and what they might know about past and future terrorist acts. At the time, this was the largest and only, really, group of al-Qaeda personnel to whom we had access and it was understood, and it turned out to be true, that many in the group had attended Al Qaeda tr- Al Qaeda trading camps, and uh, had learned, for example, about poisons, chemical warfare, and other terrorist tactics and activities.
0: So, David, were they in a prison facility, or physically where where were you with them?
3: Well, they were. They surrendered, uh, and that's the word I'll use. They they surrendered one evening. Uh, 24 November, I believe, and they were taken by these Afghan Uzbeks to a fort called Khalai Jangi. It was on the outskirts of mazar sharif and uh, there they were put into a building, the cellar of a building. And you have to understand, back there, back in Afghanistan at the time, there were no lights, there was no electricity, there were really no facilities. And at night, it was a very difficult situation to do all this. And these guys were basically put into this cellar with the idea that the next day on 25 November, we could interview them and and figure out who they were and what they were up to. So what, David, what was a typical
0: interview like? You get one of these guys and you set them down. What was it like?
3: Uh, the interviews on 25 november were brief these guys were being brought out of the cellar one by one their hands were tied behind their back using their turbans and uh i was immediately impressed by the fact that there were so many languages and countries represented by these prisoners, so-called prisoners and the languages were just incredible i spoke several languages of the of the region but uh these 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 uh, prisoners were from all over the the world, not only the Muslim world but the world in general general. We took possession of their documents, took photos, and as possible, we had brief conversations as to who they were and where they were from and and uh, what they were doing in afghanistan and most most of them spoke f- openly, I would say, about their identities, their ties to al-Qaeda, and their basic desire to c- conduct what they considered jihad. Some of them, of course, lied and didn't say much, but for the most part, they were talkative. But we just had so many people, up, up to 400 guys to go through. It, it was, there was not much time to deal with individual prisoners.
0: So you and Mike interviewed an American citizen that day, fighting fighting for the Taliban, John Walker Lind, what was that like? Did you know he was an American when you talked to him?
3: No, we did not. And uh, there were several European looking people uh, among, the, among these Al Qaeda prisoners. And one of them was John Walker Lind. We, of course, at the time didn't know, well, we didn't know who he was or where he was from he unlike most of the other prisoners we re- refused to say anything i tried all my languages on him and uh but he just not he did not even uh, utter a word and we mm. spoke in english to him as well and and again we we uh went away from that we spent a few minutes, moments with him and and he refused to speak we sort of went to an, on to other things, and we never knew that day that he was an American.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with David Tyson.
2: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
0: How long were you and Mike at the fort before things went south? And can you tell us that story?
3: Sure. Mike and I had been there about three hours in the morning. And our goal for that, that day, that first day, was to identify and photograph all the men in the group. At about 10.30, the local Afghan commander says... It's 10.30 it, in the morning, right? Yeah, 10.30 yeah. in the morning the local Afghan commander said there were about 20 men left to see and they were still in the cellar. And apparently they didn't want to come up, up out of the cellar. And it was assumed that they were trying not to be identified. So we decided, Mike and I decided to wait until all these guys came up from the basement of the building. However, prior to that, there was a lot of gunfire that erupted in this in this building in the cellar area, and explosions took place as, the, as well in this area near the basement. Uh, so where they where the weapons come from? Well, apparently they had well they did have weapons on their person, uh, and they they hid those weapons on themselves the night before. Uh, so they had those weapons and they used them when they were coming coming up the stairs, and they shot the. Uh, Afghan personnel that were trying to take the weapons away from them. And that's when it all started. The uprising started there. And where was, where was Mike and where were you when this happened and what happened to Mike? Well, Mike was in a different area. He was, he was talking to some prisoners that were being treated medically by some Afghan doctors that we had called in. And, and Mike was amongst those prisoners. And I was a little further out with an individual talking to him. And as that gunfire and explosions, as they continued, the local guard force and the prisoners began to move and attack each other. And and a lot of people started running away or running. It was very chaotic. Some of the prisoners came towards me, came for me. And, uh, I started to shoot at them, shoot them. And, uh, I moved eventually to Mike, and I found him covered with four of the Al-Qaeda guys. And Mike was, Mike was dead at this point. And uh, I took his rifle, and with his rifle and my pistol, I began to fire again. And over the course of about 17 minutes, I fired about 100 rounds wow. and, uh, with my pistol and Mike's rifle. It was very intense combat, very close quarters combat and sometimes these guys were just feet away when they shot when they were shooting at me and I was shooting at them. It was just crazy. Did uh, you have body armor on? No body armor. This is this is this is right after 9/11. The idea of body armor was not really uh current at the time. We had no body armor. No
0: and in terms of cover, you're, you're out in the open.
3: Yeah, we were in the open. This was an open area in the Southern compound, except for the building basically and some vehicles. And, and, and I was running around and they were running around and again, it was, it was very strange. I was shooting at them. They were shooting at me. Two grenades hit me, for example, one in the thigh and one in my chest, uh, neither exploded. And, uh, uh, again, it was very chaotic. And as soon as the gunfire started, I, I, I remember very clearly now that I lost my sense of hearing. Things moved in slow motion. I lost my peripheral vision. And I thought very, very quickly. Thoughts were coming in and out of my mind very, very f- fast at fractions of a second. And I knew at the time this, this was happening to me. I mean, this w- strange and weird process. Uh, I was not thinking normally, and I was on some kind of autopilot. It was it was not normal.
0: So you you knew at this point that Mike hadn't made it, and boy, you're
3: in the thick of things. Did you think this was this was it for you, or not? I don't think so. No, I I can't say I remember thinking that I was going to die. I just I was I was in a state of amazement. I would say, just trying to comprehend what was going on and what I was doing and what they were trying to do to me. Again, it was very strange. Fear was not part of the equation. It's not because I was being brave. It was simply because fear, I guess, had no place right then for me. I was certainly sort on some kind of high of adrenaline, obviously, or something like that. But, uh, it was a very strange situation. I can't account, even today, uh, for all those 17 minutes I was down in that southern compound. So, David, how did you, how did you get out of there? I uh, just kept moving north towards this entrance of the southern compound. And uh, at the northern part of the, the fort, the northern compound, I, I knew was where the other Afghan forces were, the friendly Afghan forces. And I made my way through a open field, just ran through this open area to the northern compound. And from there, we continued to fire upon the Al-Qaeda forces, who by this time, they had taken control of a large amount of small arms and, and mortars, and they were using those weapons against us. And this, this firing and shooting and, and killing continued for about four more hours. And and quick reaction force of U.S. and British military arrived to assist me and Mike, and they called in airstrikes and they laid down a, a large amount of machine gun fire, small arms fire on the enemy. But it was still determined by them that they they couldn't rescue me, as it were, and they told me to try to escape, which I was later able to do. I, I climbed out over. The wall of the fort slid down the wall with some other friendlies and got back to my uh, base. When were they able to recover Mike's body? It took a long time. It took several days, actually. Mike was killed outright in the initial moments of the uprising. But since I was not able to get back to his body and, and given my own situation of being out of communications for several hours during the fighting... We initially, Mike and myself, were considered to be missing, and it took about three more days of going back to the fort each day and assaulting the enemy positions within the fort using using uh, our Afghan forces and, and U.S. military assets until we got Mike's body. We'd made many assaults into the southern compound. And for us, at least our group, our team, uh, our only purpose at that time was to get Mike's body out of there. And, and his body was found exactly where he had fallen. And uh, we took possession of his body. And after a few more days, uh, I accompanied his body to U.S. military bases out of the country.
0: Did you stay in Afghanistan? After that, or did you come home?
3: I stayed for a, a while, uh, and then eventually I came back to Tash, uh, to. Eventually, I came back out and and met my family and so forth. But I deployed again to Afghanistan repeatedly, several times, and in that part of the world again.
0: David, back in Washington, I was President Bush's daily intelligence briefer, and uh, George Tenet, then the director of the agency, and I briefed the president on what happened. To you and Mike, the President wanted to know every detail. He actually read the very detailed cable that had been prepared on what happened, and when he got to the end of it, the end of it, he asked George Tennant um, about Mike's family. And George told, George told the President about Mike's wife, Shannon, and the kids, and the president looked at his chief of staff, Andy Card and said, "I want to call Shannon today." kind of remarkable how these two things come together david you've been incredible with your time let me just ask a couple more questions i'm just wondering if i know this is a tough question if you ever felt guilty that you were the one to have made it
3: well yes of course certainly that that was something or it is something that i think about very often that whole question of death and survival uh You know, Mike had three young children at the time. Now they're young adults. He had a wife. He had loving parents. And their loss is forever. And what Mike could have done with his life, that's all gone as well. So for me, I try to use his memory in a way so that I might be a better person. It's sort of cliche that might sound. And if you do remember, or if you can remember that, those opening and closing scenes of Saving Private Ryan, the movie, mm-hmm. when uh, Private Ryan, as an old man, visits the cemetery and the grave of the sergeant who saved his life. He struggles with that idea of sacrifice and, and his being the, the survivor. And I guess, at least for me, all one can do is try to be a better person and always remember the honor and sacrifice made by people like Mike and many many others David I think
0: a lot of people who might have gone through what you went through might have thrown in the towel might have left CIA left the government but you didn't you stayed did you ever think about leaving and why did you why did you stay
3: no I, I never thought about leaving at all and it, it was not a sort of option uh, the people in the agency, the support we received, myself and my family, those things, and this is prior to the deployment, after the deployment, that, that all made the agency my home. I, with my family, we stayed out in the field for an additional, additional eight years in that region and never had, uh, it never really entered my mind that I would leave. I went back to Afghanistan, as, as we talked about a few more times. And uh, now there's no regrets, none, none whatsoever. Uh, and I, I stress that the agency now and, and then, I, I believe, is is filled with quality, good people. And that's what made the difference for me, I, I think.
0: David, I want to let our listeners know that the loss of Mike Spann led some former agency officers to create a charity to help take care of the educational needs of the children of our officers who are lost in the line of duty. It's called the CIA Officers Memorial Fund. There's also another fund to help CIA officers and their families in broader ways for officers who serve in war zones. This is called the Third Option Foundation. Um, I would encourage my listeners to Google both of them and to decide if they wanna make a donation. David thank you for joining us and thank you for helping us tell Mike's story and your own story and most important, thank you for your service to your country over a long period of time but in those crucial in those crucial early days in Afghanistan after nine eleven thank you
3: thanks Michael. I hope that people do look at those things that you talked about regarding Mike and his memory and i i uh, hope things go well. That was
0: David Tyson. Please join us next week for another regular episode of our show. I'm Michael Morrell. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinsky, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production
1: of CBS Audio. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Millie Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist.